You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Over the next two weeks, we're going to spend our time together um, looking at the book of Job. And as we look at the book of Job, we're going to talk about the reality of suffering and sorrow. And I'll be up front with you um, as we as we look at Job and as we talk through Job, you may find the message of Job to be troubling, and you may find the message of Job to be a little bit hard to understand. Um, in some ways, to be honest with you, I have as well as I've been mulling through uh, this book over the last two or, two or three months. And, and the reason that I found it a little bit troubling and hard to understand is because Job doesn't really give us all of the answers when it comes to suffering. Um, it doesn't wrap suffering up real nicely and put a bow on it. Um, there are some things about suffering that are left unexplained in Job. See, Job is a story that invites us not to clear and comfortable answers. If you're looking for clear and comfortable answers in hardship, I hate to tell you this, but the Scriptures are the wrong place to go. Job does not do that, nor do the rest of the Scriptures. But instead, the story of Job invites us to wrestle. God invites us through this story into a wrestling match of sorts with Him. And in all honesty, I find that kind of comforting, particularly in the midst of sorrow and suffering, that when when God chose uh, a name for his people, when he identified them, and remember in the Old Testament, uh, in in that culture, in the culture of that time, names had greater significance than they do in our culture. They, They were often prophetic. They often said something about the essence of the person's character who bore that name. And so I find it comforting that when God chose to name this people through whom he would eventually accomplish his purpose on earth, he doesn't choose for them the name Aaron, which means mountain of strength, He doesn't choose for them the name Abijah, which means God is my father, or Elijah, which means my God is Yahweh. He doesn't choose for them the name Malachi, which means my messenger, even though they were certainly his messenger. But no, when God names this people who are going to be a kingdom of priests, who are going to represent him and carry out his mission, he doesn't give them a noble name. He names them Israel, which means wrestles with God wrestles with God. That's what God calls his people. God's people, as he identifies them, are those who come to know and trust and be loyal to him through the act of wrestling. And in Job, what we see is that through suffering more than any other circumstance, God invites us to engage him in the intimate act of wrestling. He invites us to wrestle because he knows, I think, that it's through wrestling, it's through struggle, it's through doubt and questioning that we really come to terms with the essence of who God is. In our suffering, all our preconceived notions about God are stripped away, and we have to wrestle with who God actually is. We may not understand our suffering, we may not get definitive answers, but if we'll commit ourselves to wrestling, we can come to a better understanding of who God is through our suffering. And when that happens, when we come to know God through the struggle, when we learn to trust Him and pledge our allegiance to Him, even though we don't understand everything about what He's doing, that's when in many ways I think we're right where we need to be. In fact, that's what I think in many ways it means to live a life of faith, to pledge our allegiance to him, even though we don't always understand everything that that he's doing. But because Job is an invitation to wrestle with God, there's tension in this book that isn't as neatly resolved as we might wish it were. 
There's, there's the tension, for example, of Job being absolutely miserable and accusing God of being unjust and wanting to die, while at the same time he repeatedly reminds himself that God's capable of bringing him through the mess that he's in and actually fulfilling his hope. There's the tension of Job's friends comforting him in his tremendous sorrow, listening and being present with him at first, but then getting angry with him and rebuking him harshly because they feel like he's ultimately being disrespectful of the Almighty. There's the tension of God being sovereign and reigning with ultimate authority over the universe, while at the same time, in some strange way, he yields part of his control over to Satan, our adversary, because of the temporary reign of sin and death. It's, it's hard to understand why God doesn't do something sooner, why the reign of sin and death isn't put to a quicker end. But Job really doesn't give us any complete understanding of why that is. There's also in Job uh, the tension between God being patient with us and allowing us to be honest with him about our frustration and even our anger in times of extreme hardship, but then at the same time calling us to acknowledge that we just don't have the knowledge that he has, and so we must learn to trust him in the midst of our pain, even though that may mean that we don't find the answers that we're looking for. The book of Job is filled with tension, and for that reason, In all honesty, it can feel unsatisfying in its answers and frustrating in its apparent contradictions, but it's for that very reason that I find the book of Job to be of tremendous comfort. Because this story, at least for me, is so true of my experience of suffering and sorrow. It so accurately represents the issues that I've grappled with in times of deep despair. Who of us hasn't wrestled with the issues that are presented in Job? Who of us hasn't suffered and been frustrated and angry while at the same time understanding in our heart of hearts that God is gracious and he's compassionate and he's able to ultimately bring restoration in wonderful and unexpected ways? Who of us hasn't seen another person suffer and long to comfort them but then perhaps balked because they went too far in their accusations against the Almighty? Who of us hasn't understood that we live in a world where our adversary has significant influence, but wondered at the same time why God allows our adversary to continue to exert that influence in such dramatic and painful ways? Who of us hasn't earnestly longed for a time in the future when that influence of the evil one will come to an end? I love Job because in some ways, as a result of the tension that it presents and the gray areas that it unveils, because of the wrestling that it invites us into, it's It's one of the most authentic and relatable books in all of the scriptures, particularly in times of deep distress and overwhelming sorrow. And so over the next two weeks, I want us to wrestle with the tension of this story because I believe that there is much to be gained through wrestling. I want us to try to to gain some insight into the apparent contradictions of this book. But as we wrestle with it, and this is vitally important, as we wrestle with it, I want us to understand the story of Job in light of the rest of the Scriptures and what we discover about God and what we discover about ourselves and about the reality of suffering as God unveils himself through the, the entirety of the Scriptures. Now, as we get started in the book of Job, I think it's important for us to acknowledge that in order to approach the story of Job from the right perspective, we actually have to begin with the end in mind. Because God says something in the closing chapter of Job that gives us a lens through which we can interpret the rest of the story of Job. And in all honesty, it's a little bit surprising, and you'll understand why I say that as we get further into the discussion of Job's story this morning. But in the final chapter of Job, Job chapter 42, just prior to Uh, Job being restored, God delivers a message to Job's friends. And this will make more sense really 
next week after we look at some of the things that Job's friends say to him during his suffering. But in verses 7 and 8 of Job 42, this is what we read. It says, After the Lord had finished speaking to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends, for you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Now take seven bulls and seven rams, go to my servant Job, and offer a burnt offering for yourselves. Then my servant Job will pray for you. I will surely accept his prayer and not deal with your folly, sorry, not deal with you as your folly deserves, for you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. And so Job closes with God telling Job's friends that he's angry with them because they haven't spoken truthfully about him. But at the same time, God says that Job has spoken truthfully about him. Now, if you're not familiar with what Job says and what Job's friends say in the course of the book of Job, that may not seem all that strange to you. Uh, You may not find that statement of God to be particularly peculiar. But when you really begin to read the things that Job actually says to and about God, and you compare those things with what Job's friends say about God, the Lord's rebuke of Job's friends and his commendation of Job become a little bit harder to understand. And so over these next two weeks, I really want us to spend some time giving thought to what Job says, and we'll do that today. And then next week, we're going to give thought to what Job's friends say, because the real lesson of what we learn about God in this story, the message of the book of Job, lies in our understanding of what's being communicated in this conversation between Job and his friends, and and even more than that, how God responds to that communication. So having looked at the end, let's get back to the beginning of the story and remind ourselves of the story of Job. Job begins with the description of our adversary. And I think it's important for us to spend some time understanding what he's, what's going on here because there's a description of things that are happening in our world that we can't see and that in all honesty we rarely give any thought to. The first two chapters of Job begin with Satan, our adversary. And Satan, The word Satan actually means adversary. Satan appears before the Lord and he's making an accusation against Job. And this is entirely consistent of what we know of Satan in other parts of the scripture. In fact, the word devil, which which is another title that is used for Satan, actually means accuser. I'm not so sure, in fact, that these two words were supposed to be proper names as much as they were supposed to be descriptions of what this being does. He's our adversary. He's our Satan. He's against us. And he's our devil. He's our accuser. But what we understand from this description of our adversary and our accusers in interaction with God is a little something about how the reign of sin and death works. See, evidently the reign of sin and death has enabled a dynamic whereby this adversary of mankind has influence over the world in which we live. He has power. That is more than clear. And with that influence, with that power, his desire essentially is to start trouble. His desire is to get mankind to blame God and through that blame to ultimately reject God so that he can get glory and honor for himself. If I understand the principles of this story correctly, he's able to initiate destruction of all kinds. He's able to initiate sickness and he's even able, if this story is accurate, which I believe it is, he's even able to initiate death. He's got tremendous sway over the world in which we live. And I think it's safe to assume, in fact, I think it's foolish if we ignore the idea that this adversary and accuser is doing against Job, what what he's doing against Job in this story is akin to what he's doing against us still today. Our adversary is on the attack. I hope 
you believe that to be true um, because it is. In 1 Peter chapter 5, as Peter's writing to suffering Christians in the first century, and I think it's important for us to acknowledge that when this Satan, when this devil occurs, oftentimes he occurs within the context of suffering, okay? Job is all about suffering. First Peter talks about him again, and the passage in which First Peter is writing, or the, or the people to whom First Peter is writing, they're suffering as well. Peter's writing to first century Christians who are suffering, and he says very plainly, be serious, be alert, your adversary or your Satan, the devil, the accuser, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, that's a sobering statement, and we rarely give much consideration to that fact. In fact, you spend a lot of time thinking about the devil chasing you around. Anybody? No, don't, don't do it, do we? We don't give a lot of consideration to that because it's so sobering, but Peter's reminding those of us who suffer that our adversary is at work through hardship. Our adversary is at work through suffering to get us to turn our backs on God. Our adversary is at work through hardship to get us to doubt God's love and God's justice. He's at work through hardship to get us to pledge our allegiance elsewhere. Friends, make no mistake about it. Our adversary is trying to devour us. Hardship, then, is not the result of God not caring about you. That's where our minds often go in hardship, and that's where Job's mind went in hardship for a time as well. But Peter reminds us that hardship and suffering are actually the result of the attacks of an enemy who's trying to get you to believe with all of his might that God doesn't care about you so that you will give your allegiance to another. And so, with that said, understanding that as our adversary's motivation, let's look very specifically at the havoc that's unleashed by this adversary as he does his twisted work against Job. Job, the greatest man of all, among all the peoples of the East, according to the text, in one day loses everything he owns. He loses in one day everything that has value to him. You ever had a day like that? If you've ever had a day when you felt like everything in your life came crashing down, when a spouse died, or you lost your job, or you were served papers for a divorce, or you got word of a debilitating or life-threatening sickness or injury, if you've ever had a day where you felt like your whole world fell apart, I think you'll be able to relate to what happens to Job beginning in chapter 1. We'll start reading in verse 13. Job 1.13, one day when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and reported, while the oxen were plowing, the donkeys grazing nearby, the Sabians swooped down and took them away. They struck down the servants with the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. He was still speaking when another messenger came and reported, a lightning storm struck from heaven. It burned up the sheep and the servants and devoured them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. That messenger was still speaking when yet another came and reported, the Chaldeans formed three bands, made a raid on the camels, and took them away. They struck down the servants with the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. He was still speaking when another messenger came and reported, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Suddenly a powerful wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on the young people so that they died, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And then it says in verse 20, then Job stood up, tore his robe, 
and shaved his head. He fell to the ground and worshiped, saying, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will leave this life. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Praise the name of Yahweh. And then it's noted at the end of chapter 1, throughout all this, Job did not sin or blame God for anything. And so in one day, Job loses nearly everything that he held dear. He loses his livestock and his servants, which were the basis of wealth in that ancient culture. He goes in almost an instant from being one of the richest men around to being a pauper. And as if that weren't enough, he loses all 10 of his children in one fell swoop. What a day. It's hard to even fathom the despair that must have been stirring in Job's heart. And yet, at least initially, Job's response is one of surprising and sorrowful acceptance. In accordance with culturally accepted expressions of sorrow, Job tears his robe, he shaves his head, and then he falls to the ground and he worships. And as he's worshiping, he says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Praise be the name of Yahweh. And then again, the first chapter closes by saying that in all this, Job did not sin or blame God for anything. And so initially, it seems like Job's going to silently accept what's happened to him without any objection. I'll be honest with you, when I've observed Job uh, and read Job in the past, I've kind of ignored everything else Job said in the book of Job and just focused on this one passage. But Job doesn't stay here, okay? He doesn't continue to thank God and praise God in the midst of his misery. But right now, it seems like he's not going to wrestle at all. But Job's adversary isn't done, and neither is his suffering. In chapter 2, we're told that in addition to taking Job's possessions and killing his children, the adversary then strikes Job's own body. Job's stricken with boils from the soles of his feet to the top of his head, and he's in such misery, the Scriptures tell us, that as he sits in ashes, he takes a piece of broken pottery and he scrapes himself, probably trying to get those boils to pop so that the, the infection and the soreness will ooze from them. He's in utter misery, but still initially he offers very little objection. He doesn't show any outward signs of wrestling. We're told at the end of chapter 2 that for seven days after all this has taken place, Job just sits in silence. He's so miserable that he can't even muster a response, and his friends are there with him to comfort him in his silence. They're, they're simply present. But it's clear, as is often the case, that over time Job's sorrow and Job's disappointment build he struggles to understand what's happened to him. And so finally, at the beginning of chapter 3, Job erupts in sorrow, and his words are real. They're not sugar-coated. Job says, May the day I was born perish, and the night when they said a boy is conceived. If only that day had turned to darkness. May God above not care about it or light shine on it. May darkness and gloom reclaim it and a cloud settle over it. Why was I not stillborn? Why didn't I die as I came from the womb? In other words, and I don't know if you've been here, I have, Job essentially says, curse the day I was born, I'd rather be dead because of my misery. Now, my intention today isn't to go into great detail about the response of Job's friends. We're going to save most of that discussion for next week, but it's worth noting that although they've sat in silence for seven days to listen to and comfort Job, when Job actually begins to speak honestly, when he begins to unveil the tension and misery that exists within him, his friends are outraged. 
They're troubled by the authenticity of Job's feelings. They're they're troubled by the fact that Job wrestles, even though God has identified that as, as the quality of this people that he's choosing by naming them wrestles with God. And because they're troubled by Job's wrestling, they begin at once, rather than remaining silent and allowing Job to express his sorrow and then comforting him, they begin at once to, first of all, rebuke Job and then to defend God. Eliphaz, the first of Job's friends to speak in chapter 4, opens by saying this. He says, should anyone try to speak with you when you're exhausted? In other words, no, right? And then he says, yet who can keep from speaking? And so Eliphaz basically says, look, I know that I shouldn't try to respond to you because you're speaking out of the most intense misery that any man has ever known. I know that it's not a good time, Job, but I'm going to answer you anyway. He, he knew that he should have just listened and just let Job express his sorrow. He knew sh- that he should have continued in silence to be present because it wasn't the right time, but he gives into that impulse to argue. He gives into the impulse to try to stop Job's wrestling through explanation. Don't ever do that to somebody who's suffering. And beginning from there, for 33 chapters, Job's friends, those who are looking on in his misery, try to explain why he's suffering. And what's revealed by God in that passage that we read from the end of the book in chapter 42 earlier is that when they tried to explain God, when they tried to expound on the reason for suffering, when they tried to give Job answers in his suffering, they were working all the while from entirely incorrect assumptions that led them to say some things that were absolutely false. See, rather than recognizing that our world is under the sway of the adversary of mankind, rather than understanding that this world is temporarily under the control of sin and death, Job's friends work from the assumption that God's the one who's orchestrating and causing everything to happen in our world. You ever hear that? And we, people talk about that type of stuff all the time. They're working from this assumption that God's the cause of everything. And so in order to try to explain the notion that God's in absolute control of everything that goes on, they come to the conclusion that Job's suffering must be the result of some sin that he's committed. They reason that God must be responding to something that he's done wrong. And actually, they work from an assumption that's still very, very prevalent today, despite the overwhelming evidence of the Scriptures to the contrary. Job's friends are working from the assumption that our current circumstances are the result of some divine commitment to karma, that those who do good will never encounter trouble. And so if if anybody is encountering trouble, they must be suffering because of sin. By the way, before we're too hard on them, we need to recognize that Job and his friends are apparently Gentiles. Uh, They come from the land of Uz. Most scholars believe that Job was a contemporary of the Jewish patriarchs, and so he and his friends, if that's true, had not received the law and the prophets. They hadn't even received the revelation of God that Abraham had received, and so they're working off of certain assumptions that were probably passed down to them from whatever religious background their families had come from, and that's important for us to remember. Their ignorance is important for us to remember as we see them interacting with Job and as we see God interacting with them. They're acting out of an ignorance that we don't any longer have. But again, in their ignorance, they make the assumption that Job's suffering is the result of some specific sin that he's committed. And the end result is that they adopt a posture of accusation and anger. They accuse, listen to the words, they accuse, and they act as adversaries. While while they view themselves as God's messengers of warning, and they make that clear throughout their argument, that 
that they can speak on God's behalf as much as Job has. And so while they, while they view themselves as God's messengers of warning, they quite literally become Satans and devils to Job, if you consider what those words actually mean. And the end result of their actions is that rather than being comforted and heard, rather than experiencing the consolation and quiet presence of his concerned friends and understanding what God is like because of their interaction with him, rather than any of that happen, happening, Job is pushed deeper and deeper into isolation and misery by their anger and their rebuke. And so when Job speaks, he speaks out of this overwhelming sense of not only having been unjustly treated by God, because he didn't understand the sway that our adversary has over our world any more than they did. He made some incorrect assumptions about God as well, but he also speaks out of the actual reality of having been abandoned by his friends. He's trying to reconcile this horrible misery with what he knows to be true about God, all while he's being attacked by those who are supposed to be comforting him. And he struggles. He wrestles. I wish we had time to read those 34 chapters or so, but we don't. And so I want us, because of the limits of time, just to look at one passage that that reveals Job's struggle to us. I want us to see how Job is weighed down by his circumstances and yet trying to hold on to what he knows to be true in his heart of hearts with respect to the Almighty. If I had to choose one, one passage out of the book of Job that represents Job's, Job's struggle, this is the one, Job chapter 19. Follow along with me. Look at what Job says. He's talking to his friends and he says, How long will you torment me and crush me with your words? You have humiliated me ten times now and you mistreat me without shame. And so he's basically saying, Can't you just mourn with me? Can't you just pause for a moment to put yourself in my shoes and have compassion for me in my despair rather than talking and arguing and trying to explain everything? Can't you just shut up and be present? Verse 4, even if it is true that I have sinned, my mistake concerns only me. If you really want to appear superior to me and would use my disgrace as evidence against me, then understand that it is God who has wronged me and caught me in his net. And so although he's commended at the end of the book by God himself for speaking truth, Job clearly blames God at this point for all that's happened. He's angry because he thinks that God is being unjust. Verse 7, I cry out violence, but get no response. I call for help, but there is no justice. And I want you to remember that phrase because when God comes back and talks to Job at the end of the book, he's going to address that very phrase where Job has said, there is no ju justice, where Job has said essentially, God, you're not committed to making right what is wrong in our world. Job says, there is no justice. He has blocked my way so that I cannot pass through. He has veiled my paths with darkness. He has stripped me of my honor and removed, removed the crown from my head. He tears me down on every side. He's talking about God here, okay? And so that I am ruined. He uproots my hope like a tree. His anger burns against me, and he regards me as one of his en enemies. If we had time to read the rest of Job's conversation with his friends, we'd see that Job's view of God evolves as he's in conversation with his friends. At first he says in chapter 1, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, praise be the name of Yahweh. And then as he processes and comes to grips with the weight of his sorrow, he expresses a desire to die. That's in chapter 3. But then when his friends start talking in chapter 4 about God as the initiator of Job's sorrow, Job begins to think like his stupid friends. He starts blaming God as well. 
And his sorrow becomes deeper and deeper because he struggles. When he's blaming God, he struggles to hold on to hope. Look at verse 12. His troops, he's still talking about God. His troops advance together. They construct a ramp against me and camp around my tent. He has removed my brothers from me. My acquaintances have abandoned me. My relatives stop coming by and my close friends have forgotten me. My house guests and female servants regard me as a stranger. I am, an, I am a, a foreigner in their sight. And so Job says, people are so puzzled by my sorrow that they regard me as a stranger. They don't know what to say, how to explain my sorrow, and so they just avoid me. My wife, if you know her and know any of her story, you know that she lost her first husband to a plane accident in 2002. And Becky and I have talked a good deal about the things that she went through as part of, of losing her first husband. And one of the things that she's always told me about is that the hardest part of all that was that after the initial you know, week or two surrounding the funeral where, where people were happy to comfort her and bring her food and do all the things that Christian people do, um, she got big bottles of ketchup and just strange things. But um, after the initial uh, couple of weeks of that taking place, she started to recognize that people didn't know what to say to her. And they didn't know how to comfort her, a 25-year-old widow. And so they just started avoiding her. And that's what Job's experiencing here. He's, he's in so much sorrow, people don't know what to do, and so they just stay away. He keeps going. Verse 16, I call for my servant, because he do, but he does not answer, even if I beg him with my own mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife, and my own family finds me repulsive. Even young boys scorn me. When I stand up, they mock me. All of my best friends despise me, and those I love have turned against me. And so in addition to feeling their abandonment, he's also feeling their hostility. And so he says in verse 21, Have mercy on me, my friends. Have mercy, for God's hand has struck me. Why do you persecute me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? And so Job's been expressing this overwhelming sense of sorrow, his, his frustration with his friends who haven't comforted him, and his frustration with God who is seemingly treating him with injustice. That's where we've come up to this point. But then in verse 25, Job reveals the wrestling match inside when he says, but, and what that but means is, even though this is my very real and present struggle, I know in my heart of hearts that there's something else to consider. And he says, but I know my living Redeemer, and he will stand on the dust at last, even after my skin has been destroyed, yet I will see God in my flesh. I will see him myself. My eyes will look at him and not as a stranger. My heart longs within me. This is Job's struggle. He's trying to reconcile the deep sorrow and despair that he's in because of the loss of his wealth and his family and because of his physical suffering. He's in torment even though he's a righteous man. But beyond all that, he's also alone. He's abandoned by his friends. His friends have become enemies to him because they've taken on the role of the adversary and the accuser. They've acted as devils to him. They've acted as Satan to him. But all the while, Job's trying to reconcile all of that with what he knows to be true about God. 
He longs to see God. He, he knows that God lives. And in theory, I think he must have understood God as a God of justice, even though he wasn't able to see through the haze of his suffering at this particular time. Because he says, I'm going to see God not as a stranger. And the implication of that is, I'm not going to see God as a stranger. I'm going to see God as a friend. And so he says, my heart longs within me. Back and forth for 34 or 35 chapters, this is the struggle. Job's accusing God of injustice in large part because of the inappropriate response of his friends, but he's also convinced that ultimately something good's going to happen because of who God is to him. There's a, a real contradiction inside of Job. He's, he's struggling. And so having listened to Job's complaint and his struggle, finally in chapter 38, it should be noted, after a long period of just listening, Finally, in chapter 38, God interrupts. And while it may seem at first as if God is angry, while it may seem like God is sick of Job's complaining, the end of the book suggests otherwise. That's why we need to read Job with the end of the book in mind. We're told very plainly at the end of the story that Job was the one who spoke truthfully about God, not his friends. We're told very plainly that God was angry with Job's friends and not with Job. God wasn't disgusted by Job's complaints. He understood that Job was in the depths of sorrow, and he understood that even in the depths of sorrow, Job was grasping on, however imperfectly, to the hope that, he would, would, uh, that the reality of the good things that God had promised would actually come true because his Redeemer was living and able. And yet, despite his patience, despite his acceptance of, of Job's words and his willingness to listen, God does offer for a moment a bit of a reality check to Job in chapters 38 through 41 of this book. In the midst of his suffering, God calls on Job to remember two things. First, God calls on Job to remember that he's capable of taking care of him. We won't read it, but beginning in chapter 38, God basically goes through a list of all these different things that he's created, and he reminds Job that if he's created all of these things, He's proven that he's capable. There's, there's no reason for Job to question his ability to care for him. God reminds Job in those, in those uh, four or five chapters that his, he's ultimately sovereign. He does have all power. But then what I think is even more significant about the way that God responds to Job is the second thing that he says. The second thing that God does is to address Job's knowledge of reality. And God actually uses sarcasm as he does this. He essentially says, Job, since you've been around so long and you've done so much, why don't you advise me? Since you've commanded the morning and assigned the dawn its place, since you've walked on the depths of the, in the depths of the ocean and led darkness back to its borders, why don't you go ahead and advise me about what I should be doing that I'm not doing for you? Wish we had time to read it, but we don't. Read it. Read Job this week, okay? God uses sarcasm and questioning to help Job understand that he just doesn't know everything that God knows. And then beginning early on in the 40th chapter of the book of Job, God makes what I think is his primary point to Job. Beginning in verse 6, it says, Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind, Get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, you will inform me. And then he says in verse 8, Would you really challenge my justice. Would you really challenge my justice? Would you declare me guilty to justify yourself? 
Now, God's line of questioning, if we read this entire passage, you'd see that it seems hostile. As I just mentioned, he uses sarcasm even to, to help Job understand the limitations of his knowledge. But ultimately, he says, Job, would you really challenge my justice? Think about this. Would you really challenge the nature of who I am? The essence of who I am as the king of the universe based only on your very limited personal experience? Would you question my goodness simply because I've allowed you to face adversity in this moment? Are you that short-sighted? And what I think God's point is in all this is that he knew something that Job just didn't know. In fact, he knew something I think that Job would not have understood had God taken the time to explain it to him at this point. And what God knew that Job didn't know was the, the length to which he would eventually go in order to demonstrate his absolute commitment to justice. That's why we have to consider Job, the message of Job, in light of the rest of the Scriptures. If we only consider Job in isolation, it seems kind of disappointing. God's basically saying, Job, you don't know what I know, and so you're just going to have to trust me on this one. And that response can seem extremely dissatisfying in the middle of suffering. People who are suffering, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, people who are suffering want answers. And those answers didn't come immediately for Job, and that was unsettling. And in all honesty, those answers don't usually come very quickly or immediately for us when we're facing suffering either. And that can be unsettling for us just as it was for Job. But the difference between us and Job is that Job is called to take heart because of God's power and his commitment to justice without the benefit of being able to see the cross. Job's called to trust without being able to understand the reality of the ultimate declaration of God's absolute commitment to justice. But we are not. See, in Romans 3, Paul describes what the cross says about the justice of God when he writes in verses 23 through 26, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Now that word propitiation is a, a little bit uh, of a complicated word, but we're going to substitute the word sacrifice there because it essentially means sacrifice. But whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a sacrifice by his blood to re be received by faith. And then he says this, this, this sacrifice was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It, the sacrifice, was to show his righteousness at the present time. Look at this. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. And so Paul says the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was to demonstrate once for all God's justice. Some things in the past, like Job's suffering, were left undone. But here at the cross... He makes all things right. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so concerning the cross, Paul says, God did this. He, he came in flesh and took on the suffering of a world that was broken by the reign of sin and death. He conquered our adversary and accuser at the expense of his own life to demonstrate once for all that he is absolutely committed to justice. And remember our definition of justice. God's saying, I'm absolutely committed to making right what has been made wrong by the reign of sin and death. See, the cross reminds us, regardless of our circumstances, 
regardless of our circumstances. The cost reminds us that God is absolutely just. He faithfully pursues at the expense of his own life our restoration. When in sorrow and suffering, I'm tempted to question God's justice, when I'm tempted to question whether or not he really cares, there is an actual historical event that proclaims that Jesus, my king, laid down his life as an a demonstration of God's absolute commitment to making me whole. For us, there's the reality illustrated by the cross of our King, the reality that God isn't just powerful enough to bring us through our suffering, which is kind of what the focus of the book of Job is, but there's also the reality here that He actually suffers with us, that He takes on suffering Himself so that He can carry our burden. See, God isn't the karma-bound creator presented by Job's friends. But he's, instead, he's so bent on establishing justice that he does it at the expense of his own life. In Romans 8, Paul kind of explains the consequences of, of this just act. When he says in verses 31 through 39, what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? We have an adversary, right? And Paul says, it doesn't, our adversary no longer matters. If God is for us, it doesn't matter who's against us. He who did not spare his own son, but offered him up for us all, how will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring any accusation against God's elect? So he's already said, our adversary, our Satan doesn't matter. Here in Romans chapter 8, verse 33, he says, our accuser doesn't matter either. Who can bring any accusation against us? Not the devil, in other words. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand and intercedes for us. And then Paul summarizes in what I think is one of the most wonderful uh, passages in all of the Scripture. He summarizes what all of this means for us when he says this, who can separate us from the love of God? So our accuser and our adversary has been conquered by the death and the resurrection. And he says, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or anguish or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than victorious through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that not even death or life, angels or rulers, things present or things to come, hostile powers, height or depth, or any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so he essentially says the cross is the absolute declaration that God is just and that he is on our side. And if that's the truth, then nothing else matters. At the close of his first letter, the Apostle Peter gives an exhortation that I think ties in kind of nicely with the overall theme of Job. More importantly, it reminds us of the character and the commitments of the one we serve. In verses 8 through 11 of 1 Peter chapter 5, pay attention to the way that Peter constructs this, okay? Verses 8 and 9, he says, Be serious, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone he can devour. Resist him and be firm in the faith knowing that the same sufferings are being persecuted by your fellow believers throughout the world. Now, I was a pastor for 10 years, and on occasion, I ran across this passage and preached it in my sermons, and I've heard it preached on a number of times. In this passage, all right, 1 Peter chapter 5, I've heard a lot of sermons on verses 8 and 9. I've never heard a sermon that addressed verses 10 and 11. In verses 8 and 9, 
Peter says, here's the reality of living under the reign of sin and death. This is what it's like. You've got an adversary and it's out to get you, but don't miss verses 10 and 11 because there's a promise there, right? Verses 10 and 11, he goes on to say, now the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus will personally restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. The dominion the ultimate power, the authority, the dominion belongs to him forever. Amen. And so Peter says, as the book of Job does, that suffering is the result of our powerful adversary diligently pursuing our destruction. If you're suffering, it is the result of living in a world that has for a time been given over to the reign of sin and death, in which we, you know, we have an adversary who, who's fiercely dedicated to our destruction. The book of Job illustrates some of how he does that. But Peter closes with a reminder, as does Job, that we serve one who is absolutely dedicated to our justice and our redemption. We serve one who has the ability to transform what our adversary has intended for our destruction into something that will ultimately be, good for, be for our good. And I know, I know that sounds cliche, and I hate sermon cliches. I know it may be of little comfort if you're in the midst of intense suffering to say, God's going to work it out. I hate people that say that when I feel bad. For those of us who, who sit in the middle of anguish or loss, Peter's words are hard to believe. But that's precisely why there's a table. See, the table is the proclamation that our God is absolutely dedicated beyond any shadow of doubt to our restoration. As, as Peter says, to establish and support and strengthen and restore us. Paul reminds us in Romans 8 that our God gave the life of his son in this pursuit. And if he gave the life of his son, Paul says there's nothing he won't do. There's nothing that can separate us from the restorative love and justice of our Lord. As you, as you come to the table this morning, you may very well identify with Job. And it may be that you don't identify with Job at the end of his story when everything works out all right. Maybe you feel more like Job at the beginning. Maybe you're sitting in silence because of your intense sorrow. Or maybe you identify with Job as he begins to speak in chapter 3. Maybe you want to die. Maybe you're, you're so miserable that you'd rather that you were never born. Maybe you don't understand and you think that God's been unjust. Maybe you wish that you could state your case before him and justify yourself. Maybe you're angry and you're trying to hold on in the midst of your anger to the belief that God is who he says he is. Maybe you're struggling and wrestling to believe that God's committed to your restoration and wholeness. Wherever you're at, I invite you to rest at a moment, for a moment, at the table. Pause for a moment and take into the deepest part of your being what is emphatically declared by the bread and the wine. Our adversary says to us through hardship that God doesn't love us, that, that he's against us, that he's out to punish us. And our suffering, the enemy pronounces that any notion of God's love and justice is a lie. But at the table, God reminds us with the very body and blood of our king of two things. One, that he is for us. And two, that there is absolutely nothing, not even affliction or anguish or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword. There is nothing 
in all of creation that will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so let your remembrance of the sacrifice of Jesus produce confidence in God's justice this morning.